Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day, another chance to live on this earth that you've provided for us, this life that you've granted us, each one of us, the chance to live it out and bring you glory. We thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ, who made this all possible. Without him, we know we're nothing and we know we're hopeless. But in him and through him, you've given us a brand new life and your power and your grace. Father, we ask that you bless this message right now, that you guide us by your Holy Spirit. Help us understand the special personal message you have for each one of us tonight as you ordained from eternity past. Help us concentrate, Father, and give our problems over to you. Right now is a time of fellowship where we can learn the mind of Christ. We ask all these things based on the merits of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Well, again, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make, part three. So um, I was glad that uh, I wasn't here on Tuesday and that Pastor and I switched this week and it actually gave him a chance to elaborate on Sunday's message, which was the beginning of this new series and uh, which was quite a powerful message on Sunday. So I'm going to do my best to review um, and get, share with you what the Spirit has kind of put on my heart. But on Tuesday, the Spirit led off with a little sidebar that was on our pastor's heart. And when that happens, um, you know, the flesh, our flesh doesn't want to pay attention. Our flesh kicks back. But when our pastor says something's been on his heart and he, and he finally shares it, we should really pay attention to that because that's how the Holy Spirit works. And I know even as a teacher and not as a pastor, how he lays things on my heart and sometimes he doesn't let them go, and he presses me to teach it eventually. So even more so for an under-shepherd, someone with that gift, who is charged with caring for the flock. So the thing that we should pay attention to that came out on Tuesday, what was on Pastor's soul, was that people misinterpret the scriptures that say God doesn't remember our sins anymore. People misinterpret the scriptures that say God doesn't remember our sins anymore. And even pastors and churches promote this, even if indirectly, as the reason to live a life of freedom without boundaries. Uh, they may not directly say it, but that's what they indirectly promote uh, in many churches, unfortunately, in the name of grace. And it's just a misappropriation of grace. Um, so again, you know, many pastors and churches might even promote this indirectly. Um, because God has forgiven our sins and doesn't remember them anymore, that it almost doesn't matter in God's eyes. Sin almost doesn't matter in God's eyes, which is really the furthest thing from the truth. So turn again to Hebrews 8.12 to see this main passage where we see this, this uh, phrase, Hebrews 8.12. Again, God put this on pastor's heart for a reason, and you should look at it that way. Um, I know for myself, there are many things he'll put on my heart, but they don't stay there all the time. You know, maybe they're just for me. Maybe they're, you know, just part of the learning curve at the time. But at times, you know, he won't let it go. So take it from the Spirit, of course. Hebrews 8.12 for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. A wonderful, beautiful passage that we're all very thankful for. However, on the board, this phrase, I will remember their sins no more, is speaking of forgiveness specifically. The penalty for sin has been lifted by Christ's sacrifice. This doesn't mean that God is somehow blind to our sins or that he doesn't care anymore. 
So this misinterpretation has caused some people to not even talk about sin anymore, even in the churches, as though it's being judgmental or out of line or legalistic. They ignore that this on the board is an issue of positional truth. This is talking about our position in Christ. We're a new creature in Christ. Right? The old things have passed away. New things have come. So in that context, this phrase is true and wonderful. And uh, as believers, we can rest in that. Thank God. But many people lump it in with sanctification. As though God doesn't care when we sin. As though there are no ramifications when we sin. And obviously that's, that's foolishness on both of those points, scripturally. So that's clearly a lie, uh, as we see if we read our Bibles in context. This is misinterpreting and abusing God's grace towards us. So, think about it this way. Grace was meant to set us free and give us direction on what is good. Grace sets us free from the past, right? By having the freedom from knowing our sins are forgiven. And it gives us a definition of what is good. Uh, what, is, what is good for life going forward as a believer. It's not to be an open door for a chaotic life. A mischievous life even. Right? How does that bring glory to God? Some people rationalize it. And again, it's just a misinterpretation uh, or a bad definition of grace. And this fits right into our teachings as of late. Our sins affect our name and how our name reflects Christ. It's pretty simple. There's no way of getting around that. Our sins affect our name and how our name reflects Christ. Uh, that's been a primary theme that a good name reflects on Christ's name. And it's for the benefit of those around us. All right? In addition to the Lord. So, for example... On that note, we have the value of extinguishing evil with good. Turn to uh, Romans twelve seventeen. Romans twelve seventeen. You know, sometimes we feel justified in sinning against someone when they've sinned against us, right? We almost feel like it might even be the right thing to do. We can rationalize that pretty easily. Someone hurts us. We didn't do anything to deserve it. For example, we'll be persecuted like Christ was persecuted in some ways. But we don't have the right to lash back. So, for example, we see the value of extinguishing evil with good. Instead of possibly responding with evil for evil and creating a bad name that, that, that hinders the name of Christ in our periphery. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, which is the temptation. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why? Well, for his namesake. For his name, we want to do that. And you kind of get a double effect here, if you think about it. If you respond with evil, uh, with good towards evil against you, right? Number one, you didn't perform evil against them, which would have hurt Christ's reputation. Number two, your enemy can't believe he's receiving good from you. And that good overwhelms him. That's what the burning coals on his head means. It overwhelms his soul, his conscience even. Like, why? This is supernatural. Why is he loving me when I did that thing to him or her. So anyway, this is all for Christ's namesake. Why do we keep our composure? 
Why do we keep our patience? Why do we obey this passage for Christ's namesake, even though it may hurt us in many, more than one way? And because people are always observing you, this has been a, a running theme for a while now, people are always observing you and your responses. And it reflects upon our Lord and Savior, whether we like it or not, whether it's fair or not. So thus the value of a good name, because it reflects on Christ. On the board, a good name, this came up on Tuesday, a good name is of great prominence in the Bible, starting with the Lord's, of course. We too have the opportunity to reveal His good name through us as vessels of mercy. Turn again to Romans 9.23. We too have the opportunity to reveal His good name through us as vessels of mercy. God gave us this vessel, this body, this life to live so that He can live through us. Romans 9.23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called by name, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. We saw this on the board. He also called, referring to God calling us as individuals by name. Each and every one of us he knows so well. Uh, no one less than the next person. Revelation 3.5 and Revelation 20.15. Let's see these verses again. Before we go on, go to Revelation 3.5. God knows everyone whom He has saved. Intimately and personally. He's called us by name to salvation, but also to sanctification. Revelation 3.5 He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. No one else has your name. Even if your name's John, and there's a million Johns in the world, no one else has your name. You're unique to God. And we'll see what that means a little bit later. Go to Revelation 20:15. Again, we're called as individuals by name. Um, those who are not saved are not called, and uh, their name won't be found written in the book of life in Revelation 20:15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, we thank God as individuals that by grace, we believers are granted this gift, the gift of eternal life, and therefore our names are found in the book of life. And we know, thank God also, that this is not based on merit. You know, you read a passage like this, you know, your name found in the book of life or not found in the book of life, and you think... Subtly, the flesh says, i got to earn it, or am I missing something, or is there something I have to do to make sure I'm in that book? Well, yeah, it's trust in Christ, as we know. Thank God it's not based on our merits. But the man found in Christ will have his name forever in the book of life. So for now, while we're still alive on earth, as believers, God's plan calls us to represent his name well. And as we know on the board, God sees beyond the mask into an, in, into an individual's heart. Uh, I had this on the board this morning as I was preparing this lesson. And this verse jumped right into my head, almost like I couldn't not you know, share this verse with you for this statement on the board. So go to Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. God sees beyond the mask into an individual's heart.
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Talk about cutting right through any image we're putting up or trying to hide from God, right? It's an impossibility. And a theme that came up on Sunday is that God knows our hearts anyway. So why do we hide or pose in front of Him? So foolish. And this is why we need to read our Bibles and read verses like Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 to remind ourselves that everything is transparent before God, no matter what kind of hiding place you try to find or what kind of denial you're in that He can see you or knows all the details. I was thinking, sometimes we even pray and we couch our prayers. You know what I mean? Like, couch, we, like, we, try, to solve, we try to say to God, oh, I didn't really mean that, God. <laughs> and He already knows what you meant, right? Even in eternity past. So, like, here we are trying to couch our prayers, like, almost like say it the right way or, or are in denial of our guilt sometimes, right? Making excuses. And you're making excuses to this God in Hebrews 4. <laughs> All things are open and laid bare to his eyes. So God's really, really encouraging us to be transparent, to drop all the walls and guards we have up, especially with him, as well as with people. So we'll get into that a little bit later. The emphasis on our individual name came out on Tuesday. So there's the concept that on the board, no one else except you can live out your name or can build a good reputation for God or not in your name or can live a life that brings honor to his name or not in your name. No one else except you can do it. I, I could, I, no matter how badly I might want to help you live out your life for God, I can't do that. It's impossible. You can't help me live out my life for God. So that means you have a, a, a unique opportunity. Unique meaning one of a kind, right? Literally one of a kind. No one else can do anything with your life. And that's a gift if you look at it this way, personally from God to you, saying, I want you, I've saved you, I've even plucked you out of the fire, I've called you, and now I want you to use this gift I gave you. So often in the devil's world, we think of life as a burden. We think of life as, you know, it is tough, obviously, right, in this crazy world. But our right perspective is that it's a gift from God and a one-time opportunity to bring Him glory before we see Him, right? One time. And it's all over for good. No, no second chances, etc. So again on the board, nobody else except you and you alone can live out your name can build a reputation for God or not, and can live a life that brings honor to His name or not. We are each given a name by God. We are each a unique work of art created by Him. When's the last time you thought of yourself that way? We always look in the mirror, we look at our uglinesses, if that's a word, our frailties, the things we don't like about ourselves, right? I heard someone describe, um, uh, you know, in sports, they're always trying to compare who's the greatest of all time stuff, right? It's like incessant, never stops. Who's the greatest basketball player? Who's the greatest football player ever, all time? And they argue and blah, 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 blah. And I heard this one owner of a team say, when he was asked to who the greatest was in his sport, he said, you know what, I cannot come out and say that dogmatically. I believe that each of them is unique work of art. Isn't that the best way to say it? There's no one like so-and-so. No one did it exactly like them. No one did it exactly like the other guy. No one did it exactly like the other guy. And so we are that same thing, even more so, 
from God's hand, a unique work of art. Unique. And that's why we should embrace it. So, therefore, we also have a unique opportunity as individuals called by God to bring Him glory. So, on the board, this came up also on Tuesday regarding our individual name. While God has forgiven us, He knows everything we think and do. All things, good or bad, are attributes of our name. If we are saved, the payment for sinning has been paid for by Christ. Go again to 1 Corinthians 3.11 as we continue our review. And if you haven't listened to Sunday's message, by the way, you really need to. Um, One of those messages that really will set you free if you're humble. So 1 Corinthians 3.11 talks about what will happen at the end of our lives in front of the Lord. For no man can lay a foundation other than, that, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will still be saved, yet so as through fire. So clearly, all things we do on earth will one day be assessed by God at the judgment seat. The sins of believers are forgiven, Yet, their works will be distinguished and given value, assigned a value, evaluated. Some are going to be burned up to ashes because they were no good, quote-unquote, to his name. There was nothing good about them. Some are going to remain, which God sees were truly good, and those endure the test of fire even. This is why our time on earth is so valuable. What do we do with each day? Do we give in to the power of sin in our lives and even ignore it without confession or repentance? Or do we turn to the Father every day, even when we sin, and do we make the most of each day, knowing one day our works are going to be evaluated? So the general message you know, on this theme is that we mustn't buy the lie that living in sin doesn't matter because we're forgiven already, right? We shouldn't buy the lie that living in sin doesn't matter. We mustn't think our freedom was meant for selfishness or even anarchy in our lives. A sinful lifestyle, think about this, a sinful lifestyle, not rocket science, it affects the works we're able to do for the Lord. It affects the works we're able to do for the Lord. It gets in the way and even destroys us. Kind of like an oil slick on a racing track. Before you know it, you're spinning out and crashing. Unable to finish the race the way you wanted to. And that's going to be the great tragedy for a lot of believers when they see the Lord. Where most of their works are burned up. What gets in the way? What, what interrupts us doing what we want to do? Sin. Like Romans 7, right? Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I... I don't... You know what I mean. <laughs> wow. You know what I'm saying. Those things get in the way. Are we going to let them get in the way and stay in the way? It takes uh, humility to turn to God and be open and laid bare with him instead of hiding things and making excuses to God as though he doesn't already know so we can continue in our lifestyle that might be against him, right? And in the meantime, we're on this oil slick, spinning around. Even though you want, your new nature wants to do the right things that bring God glory. So we saw also 1 Peter 2, 16, 
on the board, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. See, that's the thing. When people get freedom, they sometimes look at it foolishly, right? Just like a teenager would. You mean I can do whatever I want? <laughs> you mean I can go wherever I want? You mean this is my car and you don't care what time I get home, right? What are you doing? You're setting that person up for failure. But that's not God's doing on, on the part of his children. That's our doing. Misinterpreting. Grace, for example. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. That means you could do it. Instead, use it as bond slaves of God. So we have to hold the right perspective about sin. For example, real simple. We should hate sin because our God and Father hates sin. You know, the one who gave up his son so that we don't have to be judged for all eternity. And we say we love him, but we, we refuse to look at sin from his point of view. He's your God and your Father, right? He hates sin. The one who loves you and did everything he could to save you hates sin. We love him because he first loved us. And so we adopt his viewpoint on life. So we should never dismiss sin, like some churches teach, as no big deal, just because we've already been forgiven. That would be against God's heart, even. That's how a potentially good name is ruined by living in a false doctrine. So turn again to Romans 5.20. Let's just read this gracious reminder from the Holy Spirit. Don't allow a potentially good name that could bring wonderful glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Don't allow that to be ruined by living in a false doctrine or misinterpreting a doctrine because you want to, ultimately, to make excuses. Romans 5.20 The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Foolishness. Thank God for His Holy Spirit using our conscience to awaken us from foolishness. Amen? Thank God the Holy Spirit is persistent with us out of grace when we're, out, when we're out of line. And, you know, we should keep praying that we listen, that we're humble enough to hear the knocking and repent and make the most of our time going forward. We're all going to sin. We're all going to have bad days. The question is, what do you do with that? What do you do after that? Do you hide it or do you run right back to your father? Because that's what he's wanting you to do. And then make the most of the rest of your day. What do you do? The humble will listen to his knocking and repent and make the most of their time. And once again, our Lord is being very practical with us. Showing us how a good name uh, fits in with living life. So what we've been seeing, the last couple lessons especially, is two things about a good name. First of all, there's the whole truth of our lives and who we are as God sees it. Open and laid bare to Him, whether we want to admit it or not. There's also how the world sees our life and our name. And if they know we're a believer, they usually attribute our actions to the Lord Himself. Let me ask you a question to explain that. Have you ever heard a person leaving a church and claiming atheism because they were hurt by someone in the church? I don't know about you, but I've heard it too many times. Dozens of times. Have you ever heard of a person leaving a church 
and claiming they don't even believe in God anymore because they were hurt by someone in the church. Now, does that make sense? Is that, is that rational, really, to, for them to think that way? Were they hurt by the Lord himself? No, right? So why are they blaming Jesus for the sins of a person? Why claim atheism when a person failed them, not God? Because in their eyes, right or wrong, they saw God in that person that failed them. I'm not saying that's right, but that's the reality of the situation. What is that? That's their weakness. Right? Like we all have weakness, especially when you're a, a new believer. So if we know that is true, if we know people can be that weak where they wrongly blame God instead of blaming the person that harmed them or hurt them, right? If we know that's true, what can we do except just try not to make anybody stumble? Right? To the best of our ability. And realize that if we, if we sin against someone like that, that it may cause them to stumble, leave the faith even. Who knows, right? This is not to say anybody's perfect. But even if we're doing something okay in God's eyes, and this is what we're going to see in a minute from Paul, even if we're doing something we believe is okay in God's eyes for us to do as a believer, we must pay attention to the fact that the world sees our choices. And that's Paul's whole explanation um, regarding even things he was free to do but chose not to do. So let's just see a couple examples of this in 1 Corinthians, start in verse 9, 22. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. So people are weak, and we should know that. Even, um, you know, believers can be weak or have certain areas of weakness that we shouldn't try to, you know, ignore or exploit or even wrongly aggravate. <laughs> Maybe we like to get people going. I don't know. But we should be careful. We should be guarding one another's souls, really. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Okay, so he, he recognized, first of all, that a lot of people are weak, believer and unbeliever, and that you've got to watch yourself because they're always observing your choices. And then jump to 1 Corinthians 10, 23. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So Paul knew he was free in Christ. If anyone knew he was free in Christ and set free by Christ, it was Paul. But he said, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Edify means build up, particularly someone else. Not all things edify. And then he says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And then look at verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, your fellow believers. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. So we do our best to not make people stumble, even in things that we might be rightly okay in doing, for their benefit, because they might be weak. They might blame God for your failure. So we do our best, right? To regard our neighbor as more important than ourselves. Now at the same time that we do this, we have to be ourselves. That's what the Spirit's been telling us. Be yourself. Stop putting on an image. Um, stop faking who you are in front of people. 
That's been a main message as from Sunday. The Lord knows our hearts, number one. And people can also see when we're putting up a front. Even when we don't think they can, right? They can, like that radar pastor talked about. We've all got it, you know, to different degrees and all that. But people can see when we put up a front. So for those reasons, the Lord knows our heart, and people can see when we put up a front. So why waste our time? We must be real for those two reasons. Life's too short to be fake. Being an avatar has been the, the main terminology, which is like putting up a certain image, and it's a form of bondage. We put ourselves in bondage. Um, who wants to live every day being a phony? It takes much more energy and, frankly, is exhausting. And I speak from personal experience. We often want to guard our image. We often want to project a certain image because we think it's better than the one we have or we want to be like somebody else. So we often want to put up a certain image, denying certain things about ourselves, maybe. You might even do this now. Think about this. Um, you might even have a good heart while doing it. You might even be doing it to make a, a good name for Christ because you don't want to embarrass his name. So that's a good heart, being one of his followers. While it's wise to not make anyone stumble, it's not wise to be someone else or to pretend one doesn't have any sin, for example. So as we've seen from the Spirit, a good name is not an avatar. A good name is not an avatar. It's not what God wants. That's not what brings God glory, to be someone else. On the board, we don't get to project something palatable to others and expect them not to see right through our ruse. And of course, God is never fooled. And God is the one we're insulting when we do this. Why? Why is God the one we're insulting when we do this, when we put up a front, when we play someone else? Because he made you unique. He made you who you are. And he wants you to live in who he made you to be, unlike anyone else on the earth, and yet you decide to be someone else. We're insulting God. We're not accepting his gift. Not fully, anyway. He made you to be a certain way with a unique personality and style. So be who God made you to be. You know, if you're goofy, be goofy. I'm just going to start naming the dwarfs. If you're sleepy, be sleepy. That doesn't apply. But if you seriously, your personality. If you're just goofy, be goofy. Don't worry about if people make fun of you. You know what? They're going to love you for it. If you're uh, quiet and, and you like to just take things in before you speak and all that, don't be pressured into speaking by other people because they're loud or whatever. Right? Be who God made you to be. Because you know what? Really, too, in the big picture, think about we're all the body of Christ, right? So we all have a different role, a different gift, etc., etc. We all fit together like a piece of the puzzle. We're all part of his body. So you're trying to be another piece of the puzzle. Guess what? <laughs> There's a piece missing that no one else can fill. So don't insult God. Try to be somebody else. Be who God made you to be. Here's the other thing. People could be Christians, but especially non-believers, are always looking, looking, or even inspecting your life. Fair or not, when the devil's world, the devil and his minions are going to press people to press you. They're going to press people to examine your life, to scrutinize your life, even extra, to find something that's inconsistent with Christ. So for that reason, we watch what we do. We watch what we say. Because it's going to affect his name because, unfortunately, there are arrogant people out there judging you and scrutinizing you excessively. So on the board, uh, this was called the Christian Avatar. Arrogance 
is always looking for a discrepancy between that which is projected and that which is true, especially when it comes to God's children. Arrogance in others is always looking to see what's missing, see where you're not doing what you say you believe, so that they can embarrass, really, Christ's name in some way. People are always looking for a falsehood in a Christian. The best thing we can do is be ourselves from the beginning and freely admit our weakness when given the chance. Let people know that you're not better than them, that you know you, <laughs> they need to know sometimes you're weak. They need to hear it sometimes. They need to see it sometimes. That honesty, that, yeah, I'm not perfect. Only Christ is perfect. Instead of putting up a front and then being discovered later on, you're a failure. And then behind your back, they, they ridicule you in, in the name of Christ. That's why from the beginning, we've got to try to be ourselves with people. You know, so many religious people think that a Christian thinks they're better than others. You know, they think that a Christian means that they think they're so good, right, that God loves them, but God doesn't love everyone else. That's what people think from the outside. Well, we know we've just simply admitted our ineptitude, our uh, frailty, our weakness without Christ. So sometimes they need to hear that. Sometimes they need to see that in our lives. And putting up a front isn't going to help either one of those realities from shining through. We've also seen in the last two lessons that Jesus despised phoniness. Uh, he spent his time with people that were flawed and that were humble enough to admit it. He enjoyed being around humble, transparent people. Why is that? Because those people are honest and they're ready to be loved. That's the soil that receives the good news with gratitude. So Jesus loved being around him. He's like, you know what? I got good news for you. Why? Because I can tell you're humble. You're not trying to hide your sin from me. You're being honest. So I got good news for you that you're actually going to receive. And you're going to be very grateful for. Because you don't have this thing up in front of you saying you're not a bad person. That you don't need a Savior, etc. What did Jesus say about Nathaniel? Turn to John 147 so we can see this. John 147. What did Jesus say about Nathaniel? In the beginning of his ministry here, John 147. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. On the board, the word deceit in John 147 is the Greek dalos from an obsolete primary verb, delo, probably meant to decoy. It also means a trick, as in baiting, figuratively wile. So this word deceit, we might say means to decoy or trick someone. In other words, there was no phoniness in this man, Nathaniel. There was no decoy held up in front of him like a mask. And the Lord declared it. He's like, behold, an Israelite indeed. Think about that word indeed, by the way. Indeed. How you live. He lived with no deceit. No phoniness. A very refreshing thing, right? And a very rare thing. When I see the word decoy, I think of duck hunters holding up fake ducks on a stick and throwing plastic ducks in the water to fool the other ducks. Imagine holding up a picture of a duck in front of your face and trying to convince people you're a duck. Yeah, this is me. I really don't want to talk to anyone. 
or for anyone to see my flaws. So please just believe me. I'm just a duck trying to duck life. Pun intended. Nothing to see here. You know, let me hold up this mask. It's not, this is really me. Just please believe me. So I don't have to face you. I don't have to be honest with you. Of course, I'm being silly. But even though it's foolish, we do it. We do it. God's trying to set us free from this thing that we hold on to to certain different degrees. So on the board, we'd call it foolishness. We hold up our decoys, hoping people won't see the real us. Even though God made us that way, and Jesus accepts us just as we are. So we couldn't be more foolish. Because God said, this is the the unique work of art I've made you. And Jesus accepts you just the way you are and took you in just the way you are once you surrendered to him. And yet, we hold up decoys. We hold up masks. Amazing. When Jesus met Nathaniel, he might have been saying, finally, like a breath of fresh air, finally, someone with no disguise, with no deceit. Just like the relief we get when we meet someone who's real and honest with us. <coughs> Excuse me. So think about this. How is Jesus to forgive someone who refuses to confess his sinfulness? How is Jesus to forgive someone who refuses to confess his sinfulness? Like holding up the mask and saying, I'm not a sinner. Just don't look behind this so you don't discover the truth. How's he going to forgive that person? In other words, if someone's putting up a front like a Pharisee and he's living in denial of his sins, how can he receive the grace and forgiveness of the Savior? He doesn't even want it. He doesn't think he needs it. At least that's what he's talking himself into. The avatar people hold up in front of the real them is a hindrance to receiving the free forgiveness offered by our Lord, even experientially as a believer. We do it. We get religious. We try to be perfected by the flesh, as Galatians says instead of by the spirit that we began with. Only the humble sinner can enjoy the grace of our Lord and be forgiven. We can only hope to see that in those we evangelize. On the board, we evangelize real people, not their avatars. The fundamental issue is that most people want to project what they want others to see, not what they actually are. And only the flesh can love an avatar. The flesh loves it, eats it right up. Because then you're on the same wavelength. Like you get two people faking to be someone that they want to be, and it happens to be the same one. Let's say it's a movie star. I want in my head to be like so-and-so. I want to look like them, I want to act like them, I want to whatever, live like them, etc. And you meet someone else putting up a similar front. You're like, hey, we got something in common. Let's fake this out together. Let's live the life of someone else and forget about God's plan. Only the flesh can love that because it's opening things up to creature credit. Uh, Maybe self is good enough on its own. Maybe I can figure this out on my own without submitting to the Lord. If I just change a few things, I can project a certain image and maybe fool everybody. Well, here's something that came up on Tuesday. An avatar is exactly what the flesh desires because it can't face the fact that it is itself wretched. It doesn't want to face the fact that it's wretched. Nor does it want others to see such things about itself. And that is what we call fleshly pride. One of the greatest sins in the Bible that deceives and kills many. The flesh claiming self-sufficiency, even though it's totally depraved, is just living in denial. And God's been telling us, be honest with yourselves. 
Just be honest with yourselves. God might say something like this on the board. I know everything about you anyhow. Will you drop your guard and be honest with yourself? I love you and I'm here to carry you, not to judge you. But our flesh gets defensive. But this is God's heart, we know. If we don't drop our guard with the Lord, we're foolishly keeping God at arm's length. It's like someone trying to come up to you and give you a hug, and you're like, no, 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 that's okay, that's far enough. I'll, sh- I'll shake hands, that's, that's it. You're literally keeping God at arm's length. How silly is that? The one who has perfect and pure love. And we can even do that as believers. Not being ourselves, not being humble and open and honest with Him and with ourselves. It's crazy what we do to ourselves. And then in the process, we ruin intimacy. We ruin our closeness and trust that God desires to have with us. And we wonder why we don't have peace. An intimacy that can truly set us free because we are who we are without pretension. That's what God's hoping for. For us to come to that point where we drop the avatars and enjoy Him. Enjoy His unconditional love despite our ugliness. Also from Tuesday, as we begin to close, when we're honest with each other, not just God, but when we're honest with each other, it engenders trust, which is what any good relationship is based on. On the board, without trust, relationships never grow. And that means they never get good. They never get really good. They never get real uh, trustworthy, intimate, um, th- th- peaceful relationship? How about a relationship where you can actually truly relax with someone because they know your flaws or because you've, you've hashed things out very openly in private, like the privacy, the intimacy between friends? Um, you're not going to have that closeness and that relaxation amongst others when you keep holding up fronts. And think about it. We do this to each other other as fellow believers who are fighting the same fight. We even know the truth. We know the truth about ourselves, how depraved we are, but we hide it from each other. Wait a minute, I thought you believed that you're depraved, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? So you say you believe that, but you're not willing to be open about it, about yourself. We're fighting against things like sin and the world and the flesh together, the same battle, and yet we don't trust each other with intimate things sometimes. And you know how one lie always leads to another? Anyone know what I'm talking about? No, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Leo knows what I'm talking about. Thanks, Leo. You know how one lie leads to another? And then you have to come up with another one to make those other two stick. And all of a sudden, you're down the road trying to hold up a bag of like 20 lies while the whole thing comes crashing down and you're embarrassed. That's like being an avatar. When we put up that front, and God's like, just admit who you are. Stop being that way. We all know, as Pastor would say, right? We all know your weakness, your issues. Don't keep, don't keep covering up a false image. On the board, if you struggle with relationships, Chances are you have historically given others an avatar, not your true self. People would rather so much that you be real with them. Uh, At least they know what they're getting, and they might even appreciate you even more. At least there will be nothing between you, right? Like no impressions, nothing false between you. And what, what should give us the strength to do this? Because it takes, you know, humility and courage, let's say, to open up to somebody honestly. What should give us the strength to do this? One very loving person. Remember that Jesus chose you personally by name with all your warts and scars. If you're good enough for Jesus, then you're good enough for anyone. Take that to heart. 
Take the time to focus solely on Christ and how He's accepted you as you are. And if that's true, and it is, then the heck with people that won't do that. They're not your friends. And you don't want too many friends, right? The Bible even says it. You don't want too many friends. There are certain friends you need to let go, to let walk away from you, to be real in front of, and let them judge you or shun you or whatever. Because they're not meant to be real friends. They're not meant to be intimate with. But God will provide you that one or two that maybe you are meant to be so open with and and have a, a true relationship. But Christ is a source of the strength to do that thing, to, to have his peace, especially when we look in the mirror. He's a source of our strength to be able to do that and to be open and honest. So on the board, we all need to make a decision of no more avatars. That's what the Spirit's calling us to do. Don't fake it or lie to look good. And if you can't be open about something with somebody right now, at least don't make something up. That's what we tend to do, right? That's like our defense mechanism. Well, I don't know how to answer this, so I'm going to put up, you know, this image. So no one discovers my flaws or my weaknesses. If you don't want to share something, that's fine, but at least don't make up something that's not true. Be honest and vulnerable. People will appreciate it, and, and honestly, all people can relate to that because they want to be honest and open and vulnerable with you. But sometimes it takes... An example. And believers who love like Christ are ready to see the real you and uh, share the real them with you. And that's where a real good godly friendship comes. You know, a bond forms. And you truly fight the fight together instead of hiding things and staying in isolation. We all know we're nothing without Christ. So on the board, uh, just a couple points to close. We saw this regarding Matthew 21, 28 through 32. Jesus was saying that an honest, repentant prostitute has always had a better chance at being saved by God than a self-righteous avatar of a person. A person who isn't playing uh, some game of projection is the one who comes to terms with their wretchedness. They are therefore fertile soil for the gospel seed in Matthew 13. And these are the people you want as your friends, not the rest. People who have God's merciful perspective is who you want to hang out with anyway, right? I hope so. Let some people in your life uh, fall to the wayside. And regardless of what happens, as you're open and honest and transparent with people, regardless of what happens, we can stand on the fact that Christ has forgiven us. He's endorsed us personally through his amazing grace. And again, if we're good enough for Christ, you know, we're good enough for anybody. On the board, a believer's good name. The word states that a good name isn't something we earn by cultivating an avatar. A good name is something real like its owner. For example, the Pharisees were dishonest about themselves preferring to project something righteous than accept righteousness in Christ. That's a big statement right there. Preferring to project something righteous. And that's what a lot of religious people do. They project an image of, I'm not that bad. Don't look behind the curtain and see my sins. I'm not going to tell you my sins so you don't think I'm that bad. And I'm even going to try to earn my way with God because I'm better than most. They prefer to project something righteous rather than accept the only way to true righteousness, which is righteousness in Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word and your amazing grace towards us. Father, we ask that you give us the strength and the humility and the courage to be who you made us to be. We thank you for making us each a unique work of art from your hands, designed for a certain purpose that only we can fulfill. And we ask, Father, that you help us cling to you and you alone, knowing we're loved by you unconditionally, 
that love that you proved to us on the cross. Father, we also pray for those who are sick and those who are struggling in our congregation. We ask that you give them healing and strength and more faith. And we ask that you help uh, bring them back to us soon so that we can see them and fellowship with them again. Uh, Father, we all have our own battles, as you know, and we thank you for the strength that you give us when we turn to you. We ask, Father, that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.